الحمد لله الحمد الشاكرين والصلاة والسلام على سيد المرسلين سيدنا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين اللهم صل وسلم وبارك على سيدنا محمد طب القلوب ودوائها والنور الأبصار وضيائها وعافية الأبدان والشفائها صلى الله وسلم وبارك على سيدنا محمد كلما بكرك الذاكرون وغفل عن ذكرك الغافلون Today's subject relates to atheism and its offshoots Atheism, the rejection of the existence of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala with pretensions to science and pretensions to knowledge the claim that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala does not exist and the Quran is false as well as the teachings of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam the claim is made that those teachings are also false this is in essence atheism and as well as the rejection of all faiths where as Muslims do we stand with regard to atheism our position can be summarized as being atheism affects the mind, it affects the morality and ethics, and most importantly, it affects the spirit of the one who adopts atheism as a position. Atheism is the rejection of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and we believe this is counterintuitive to the fitrah, the natural disposition of a human being. The natural disposition of a human being is to believe in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. What do I mean by natural disposition? What that entails is that when a person, if he is left in his natural primordial state within the confines of a natural environment without exposition to unnatural thoughts, then a person will naturally believe in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. In other words, if we even replace the word Allah with a divine being, or a supreme being, or a first cause, or an eternal cause of the universe, naturally speaking, a person will believe in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. This is the way we have been created. This is evident if a passenger plane took a nosedive and all the passengers within the plane they all shouted out oh god who are they calling to by saying oh god what is that natural reaction by saying oh god and if someone says oh god is something peculiar to that civilization then this is false also because when we observe all the various civilizations of the world historically and contempor uh, contemporaneously in the modern age, we will notice that every civilization and nation has a word for God. Some of them may refer to him as God, others will refer to him as Khuda. Why is this? Why are all of human nations convening or upon a consensus of agreement with regard to the existence of the divine? This is because of the nature, the innate nature of the humankind, of the human being, to realize with the fitrah, 
the natural disposition and the mind, that there is indeed a creator for the universe. Like, for instance, if we all heard the door being knocked, that someone was knocking at the door, we would conclude with our outward senses, our five outward senses, which are the senses of hearing, seeing, tasting, smelling, and touching, all of these senses, we would conclude that there is indeed someone knocking the door. Later on, we may differ with regard to the attributes of the person who is actually knocking the door. We may dispute, is it a woman, is it a man, is it a child? But there is a distinction between tasawwur, conceptualizing something, and comprehending something completely. At-ta'aqul. What do I mean? We can understand that there is a first cause, but understanding the reality of the first cause can be beyond the human mind. It can go beyond the human mind to comprehend the reality. For instance, if I say to you that there is a universe that we live in, you can comprehend the fact that we live in a universe, but understanding the reality behind the universe, understanding the components of the universe can go beyond the human mind because the human mind is in its nature is limited. So this is a distinction between at-aqul, comprehending something in its entirety, and at-tasawwur, just understanding the concept. If I say to you humankind, when I say to you humankind, you understand humankind. You understand the universal, a universal concept, the human being, a kulli, which is a, a universal concept. But if I said to you to have a ta'aqul, rationalize every individual human being, you would be unable to do so. You can never go through every single human being. Now, in one discussion with an atheist, a former Muslim who left Islam, a young man, he said to me, the human mind can do this. I said, how? He said, by building a computer. But of course, this is false. It's a fallacy. Why is it a fallacy? Because the computer does the action of computerizing, computing, going through every human being. But the computer can make faults, make mistakes, and be at fault. And there is a limit to that device also. At the same time, it's not the human mind doing the action of processing. The human being may have made the device, but the device is carrying out the function. So, the natural disposition is that we draw the conclusion that there is someone knocking the door in a similar way, the natural disposition of the human being is to draw the conclusion that there is someone who has created the universe. There is a first cause for the universe. Outwardly, we have the five senses, these five senses of hearing, seeing, speaking, and whatnot. But inwardly, also, we have the innate faculties of comprehending. For instance, when someone feels love, that is a nature created by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala inwardly within the human being, similar to anger, similar to anxiety, ambivalence, all these various emotions a person may feel, 
this is internal sensory perception. So we have external sensory perception, we have internal sensory perception, we conclude with that that there is a divine creator. But then there are also rational, intellectual arguments that people devise in order to prove the existence of a creator. Like the contingent universe and the nature of the universe, that the universe in itself can never have continued eternally and be subsistent because in its very nature it has an inception point. It starts at some point. Something that has an inception point and is contingent, it comes in and out of existence, cannot be self-subsistent in its very nature. It needs a cause. And the cause in itself must be eternal. A self-subsistent eternal cause. Once a person concludes that there is a self-subsistent eternal cause for the universe, which is a very intellectual conclusion, the conclusion of the overwhelming majority of the great minds of humanity, that there is an eternal cause for the universe, then you go into the specifics of the divine attributes of that eternal cause. The eternal cause must be self-subsistent, meaning it does not rely upon anything else, because if it relied on anything else, then, it's, then it itself is effectuated and caused by something else. And this leads to what? Regression. Uh, uh, an infinite regression. Ad infinitum, it goes on for no end, that uh, that cause as a cause, and that cause as a cause, and that cause as a cause, without going to a self-subsistent cause. So, that cause of the universe is self-subsistent, not caused by anything else. Eventually, when you go backwards, of contingent things, meaning things which have an existence after non-existence, they all stop at a, an eternal cause. Then that eternal cause cannot bear any resemblance to creation which is referred to as opposition to the contingent. What does that mean? If it bore resemblance to the creation, then it itself would have the attributes of the creation and would perish. And anything that perishes is not subsistent and is unable, is rendered incapable of bringing anything else into existence. So it's essential that the first cause of the universe is self-subsistent in opposition to the creation, meaning it bears no resemblance to the creation. This cause must be one in nature, which is referred to as al-wahdaniyah, the oneness of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, because if there were multiple, a multiplicity of causes, multiples would have various wills, they will not have one will, because each one is an individual by nature, and individuality by nature is determined by a free will. So if they had a will of their own, which is the very nature of being multiple and different, then they would, their wills would clash, otherwise their will cannot be one. Or we would say, the divine power would clash. They would dispute with one another. So the divine cause of the universe must be one. 
And then this divine cause must have knowledge. Because if the divine cause did not have knowledge, then ignorance does not create the type of universe, the perfected universe, perfected in the sense that we see mathematical perfection. A fine-tuned universe that we see and observe and we know scientifically could not be the produce of chance. It is the produce of what? Of knowledge. And similarly, this divine cause will have power because if this divine cause was incapable, had no divine power, then the divine cause would be unable to create the known universe that we observe. And similarly, this divine cause has a will, meaning willingly this divine cause created the universe because if this divine cause did not have a will, then this would mean that the universe came into existence without the will of the divine cause, rendering that divine cause as not being divine. And something which is something which is contingent in its very nature cannot will itself into existence. Like Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in Al-Quran al-Kareem, هَلْ أَتَى عَلَى الْإِنسَانِ حِينٌ مِنَ الْدَهْرِ لَمْ يَكُمْ شَيْئًا مَذْكُورًا In Surah Al-Dahr, Surah Al-Insan, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says this rhetorical device is known as Al-Istifham Al-Inkari, a rhetorical question. Has a time arrived in humanity? حِينٌ مِنَ الْدَهْرِ A moment of time. From epoch, from Adahar, that humanity was something unmentioned? The answer would be yes. There was not a small moment of time. There were epochs and epochs of time when humanity did not exist. What is the purpose of the question? We unpack what is contained within the verse. We understand that we only have three options. You came into existence from nothing. Number two, you brought yourself into existence. Number three, someone brought you into existence. The only sensible answer is that someone else brought you into existence. When we conclude this, because we did not will ourselves into existence, and neither did we come from nothing, because absolute nothingness only produces nothingness. Because absolute nothingness does not exist. Do not be confused by Lawrence Krauss who claims in his book A Universe Out of Nothing that the universe came out of nothing. Because when you read the entire book patiently at the end you will find that what he means by nothing is actually something. But he means nothing in terms of physics. But it does exist. There is something that exists. So absolute nothingness produces nothingness because it does not exist in the first place. The position of Ahlul Sunnah wal Jama'ah is what? Nothingness has no existence. Al-Ma'adun laysa bi So, the three options that we brought ourselves into existence is false. We came from nothing is false. Someone brought us into existence. Now this conclusion entails that the one who brought us into existence must be self-subsistent. Because if we say the universe brought us into existence, the universe is not self-subsistent. How do we know the universe is not self-subsistent? Because it is contingent in its very nature. When we observe the universe, 
it either moves or is still, or parts of it are moving and parts of it are still. This is held contingency. Contingency means it comes into existence and then goes out into existence, out of existence. So the conclusion of this is that the very nature of human beings concludes that there is a cause, that cause bears no resemblance to anything in creation, and this is what makes the distinction between Islam other religions. Because in other religions, they make a similarity between the divine cause. So in Hinduism, for instance, if they believe that there is an eternal cause for the universe, they believe that the universe was caused by something which bears resemblance to creation. If you can even deem Hinduism as an actual organized religion. In fact, it's a cluster of pagan groups that became known as Hinduism after British rule. And then Buddhism is a philosophy that has no God. And then we are we end up with the other two faiths. One is Christianity and the other is Judaism. Christianity and Judaism have an origin with revelation. But what occurred with Judaism is that Judaism became pampered because they made it into a racial religion. The tribe of Judah that dominated the other tribes then made Judaism a racial religion and the teachings were tampered. After which Christianity, Sayyidina came to lift the remnants of Bani Israel, the progeny of Yaqub from materialism into spirituality and some of them mistaken that as being divinity. So they ascribed divinity to Isa and therefore resembled the divine creator to Isa So the only revelation that was sent down and preserved correctly in all ways is Al-Islam because the belief in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala remains pure, min tawheed, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala bears no resemblance to creation, He is eternal, He has His divine attributes, which are all mentioned in the Al-Quran al-Kareem and the Sunnah of the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Therefore, atheism in its essence is the rejection of the fitrah, the natural disposition. Now, if someone adopts atheism as a position, they will affect themselves morally and ethically. How the rejection of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala leads to a moral and ethical conundrum. A person enters a quagmire of difficulties, of emotional and intellectual problems because they have no fundamental law to refer back to. What is referred to as moral relativism is what Morality becomes relative to time and place. And this is the essence of secular rule. What is secularism? Secularism is to believe that the law of God does not know, does not apply, but man must determine law. When man begins to determine law, then what occurs is that man carries out acts of tyranny. And if he does not carry out tyranny, then his law will have faults. His law will be wrong. Meaning any atheist, you ask them whether they believe 
in the validation of things like what? Like incest, they will say, of course not, the overwhelming majority of them. They will reject incest. Why will they reject incest? Because they know morally and ethically this action is wrong. But if you are an atheist, you have no moral compass. Now some people argue that there, there is morality with atheism. That's because they have adopted morality, but there is, no fun, there is no intellectual foundation for morality. There is no intellectual foundation for any morality without the belief in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Why? Because the intellect alone is insufficient in determining absolute morality. Absolute morality. The intellect can uncover at times those things which are moral, it can uncover at times certain aspects of ethics and morality, but the intellect is insufficient in determining absolute morality. So therefore you need an external light, like the eye, if you have the eye, you enter a dark room, your eye is perfectly functioning, but you see darkness. You need an external light in order to reflect from your biological eye, by which then you can determine what is contained within the room. Similarly, the intellect is a light. The, the apple, the apple is a, something that subsides in the brain, in, in the physical brain, but it needs an external light. What is that external light? That external light is the revelation. In this case, in Al-Quran Al-Kareem and the Sunnah of the Prophet that then reflects on the intellect and gives a real insight into right and wrong. This is why one of the words for Al-Quran Al-Kareem is Al-Furqan. What is Al-Furqan? Al-Furqan is that which can distinguish between right and wrong. So Al-Quran Al-Kareem gives us that moral foundation. Otherwise, a person who adopts secular law, they will carry out tyranny. How? Because they will be unable to determine, meaning they will never form a consensus of what is right and wrong. And this leads to moral relativism, which is what? That in some times and places they will say this is fine. Like cannibalism, in some societies may be deemed as acceptable. But in the vast majority of societies which had divine revelations, cannibalism is rejected. But with Islamic law, cannibalism is always wrong. Similarly, murder is wrong. Theft is wrong. There are certain absolutes. They may refer to this as being what moral absolutism. Moral absolutism in contradistinction to what? to moral relativism. Now, re moral relativism is the society that we live in in the modern age has its roots in atheism. Even in England today, people may say that they are Anglican Christian, but the Anglican church in reality is secular atheism dressed and guised as Christianity. Because the Anglican church has no say in politics and in, the, in, in lawmaking. So, society today has its foundations made on atheism and a concomitant of atheism is what? 
is secular law, is moral relativism, that morality changes with time and place. This is why in democracy today, if the overwhelming majority decided that cannibalism is permitted, they can effectuate this as law. If the overwhelming majority of people deemed incest as being permitted, they can effectuate this as law. This is what moral relativism leads to. And you can say, in that sense, democracy in that sense is an absolutism of a, popular, of a populist way of thinking. I mean, something becomes popular, but populism can lead to an absolutist way of thinking. And Hitler demonstrated that in Germany. Remember, Hitler was a produce of Western democracy. Hitler was a produce of Western democracy. That when you have an overwhelming majority of people just thinking in a particular way, they can govern according to that way. Which is in contradistinction to the Quran and the Sunnah. Because the Quran and Sunnah is determined by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. On the tongue of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, who is ma'asum, free from sin. And the Quran and Sunnah gives us principles upon which to govern society. Those principles can never change with time and place. Certain set principles, even though there are legal maxims by which law can be, law can change certain aspects, but within a boundary, within an immutable, unchangeable law, that within that parameter there are certain exceptions, like for instance, to save life, a person can consume swine. They can consume swine meat to save life. That is the subject of what legal theory? But the point being that, sec that today's society is based on atheist principles which lead to secularism and moral relativism. The foundations of that are based upon materialism. The belief that there is nothing beyond the known universe and the physical world that we observe. The material realm. So the rejection of anything which is what metaphysical. What do I mean by metaphysical? What is meant by metaphysical is that which exists beyond physical matter. That which exists beyond the physical realm. So materialism is one of the foundational philosophies that trickles down to the masses today. Which leads to atheism, secularism and moral relativism. Additionally, utilitarianism and empiricism, meaning believing that there is nothing that exists beyond the physical senses. So sensory perception, there is nothing else that exists. So even dreams and other things, spiritual experiences are deemed as being a chemical reaction in the mind. So it's essential for us as Muslims today to understand the philosophical foundations of modern society. That modern society is based upon these philosophies. And we as Muslims, we must understand how to critique those philosophies. How do we critique them? We critique them by understanding that, firstly, in terms of materialism, materialism does not give us any real explanation of who the human being is, our role in the universe. It's the human being becomes a biological machine. A biological machine like, a, like any other creature on the, on the face of the earth, like an animal. 
The intellect holds no value. The soul holds no value. Ethics and morality hold no value. If a person adopts materialism, human life even holds no value. Except, of course, if someone is a capitalist, then they would say that the value of human life is only capital gain. So materialism to gain materialistic benefit. So the purpose of keeping preservation of life, the reason for preservation of life is only to preserve the material gain from the human being who stays alive. What would that entail for the capitalist? That the masses, they are just human robots that are alive, that work in factories, and when they work in factories, we pay them meager wages, but we benefit materialistically by extracting the resources from the earth to no end. That is what materialism leads to. But in Islam, the human being has a greater role to play. Meaning the human being is, a, is material in the sense that he is a biological human being, but at the same time, he is spiritual because he has the ruh and the intellect. The ruh, which resides in the heart, the intellect, which remain, resides in the brain, both of these are the upper part of the body. The role of the human being transcends the role of an animal. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala created us with various bestial desires. But those animalistic desires were created within us to protect ourselves within the animal kingdom. So we may have anger in order to deter an enemy. We may have pride in order to, uh, to maintain some dignity. We may have certain traits within us in order that we carry out ta'amir al which is what to, to build civilization, to construct civilization. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed a law also in order to maintain a balance, which is known as al-bizan, the scale. What is the mizan, the scale by which we weigh right and wrong, which is contained in Al-Quran Al-Kareem. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, وَوَضَعَ الْمِيزَانِ And He placed a scale. So then, when we analyze the law which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed, there are a few questions with regard to this. Some people ask with regard to the preservation of the Quran and the Sunnah, and other people ask with regard to the content of the Qur'an and Sunnah. Meaning the counter-objections. That someone may say, okay, we believe that there is a divine creator who created the universe, human beings have a purpose, and we accept for argument's sake that the divine sent down a revelation and Islam from amongst all the religions in terms of theistically speaking, in terms of its theism, its belief in God, makes the most perfect sense that the belief in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala makes more sense than Buddhism or Hinduism or the Christian belief of man worship because they worship Isa who is a man. Islam is unique in that regard. But there are two questions from which a subsidiary of questions, multiple questions branch out. One of them is regarding the preservation of the Quran and the second one relates to the contents of the Quran in terms of governance. Firstly, with regard to the preservation of the Qur'an, of course there is an entire history that has been written down with regard to how the Qur'an was written, how the Qur'an was memorized, and how the Qur'an was preserved over the centuries. But to simplify this long discussion, 
what I would want to mention is that every year we have the Quran being recited in a prayer known as Salatul Taraweeh. Every year. This practice has continued from the Caliphate of Sayyidina Umar only a few years after the passing away of Rasulullah that Sayyidina Umar he entered the Masjid Al-Masjid Al-Nabwi Al-Sharif and when he entered the Masjid he saw that the people were scattered into groups when they were scattered into groups they were praying individually their Taraweeh he said let's gather them into a congregation in accordance with the Sunnah because the Prophet gathered the people on Taraweeh for three days since that time until today the Quran is recited in its entirety not only in one masjid, in all the masajid. So in the time of Sayyidina Umar radiallahu anhu, over 10,000 masajid were established. Let's say for argument's sake initially, they only did taraweeh in 1,000 masajid. Even though he established over 10,000. Every year the entire Quran is recited. And if the Imam makes a mistake, someone from the congregation corrects him. Even in Makkah and Karmah. Today in Mecca and Karama, if the Imam is reading the Salat of Taraweeh and there are over a million people praying behind him, if he makes a mistake, people are not only reading the Quran alongside many thousands know the Quran by heart, they correct him. This practice has continued for well over 1400 years. This practice alone guarantees the preservation of the Quran. Of course, these claimants of secular objectivism, people claiming that they are objective in checking the Qur'an, if they apply these rules and regulations upon secular texts like the Magna Carta or the ecclesiastical history of the English people, if they apply those rules on these type of books, they will realize that the Qur'an stands up to more scrutiny than any other book in history. Even the King James Version of the Bible, commissioned by King James in the 1600s, King James I of England, the son of Mary, Queen of Scots, he commissioned one of the first Protestant translations of the Bible into the English language. Yet we know of the, the veracity of the text 400 years later, why the text has reached us through mass transmission. But even that text, the preciseness does not match to the Qur'an. Because not only the Qur'an is preserved textually as in terms of having been written down, the Qur'an has been preserved orally with its oral transmission. What they refer to as viva voce, meaning orally uh, transmitted or viva voce would refer more to uh, a smouse of a squat so the correct word is orally transmitted means oral transmission is precise and correct so this is in terms of the preservation of the Quran the second point which people bring up today is with regard to the content of some of the legal rulings of the Quran and of course this 
is a longer discussion. But the objection would be wrong if someone were to accept that this Quran was indeed revealed by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and, and explained by the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. They would accept that the divine law supersedes any human law. But the modern mind has certain objections. Now some of those objections we will cover and then we will open up inshallah for questions and answers. One of those objections is the objection relating to jihad. So the summary of the response is that jihad is indeed legislated in the Quran. But nowhere in the Quran will you find a verse where the Quran sanctions pillaging, killing of women and children, defenseless women, or the killing of civilians, or doing jihad for the sake of violence. Jihad was legislated, offensive and defensive jihad, both of them have been legislated. But the offensive jihad, which is agreed upon, it's a part of our deen, is preemptive in its nature. It's preemptive in its nature. What does that mean? The ruler has been commanded to prepare militarily and to prepare weapons in order to subdue any animosity, aggression, violence from any group of people that attempt to violate the sanctity of human life. This is the background of jihad. Of course, in the modern age, people become confused with jihad and modern groups that attempt to implement jihad in, in the wrong way in order to deform jihad in the, way, in the name of jihad. But in reality, when you analyze the Quran, all the verses of the Quran, you will realize that jihad is simply the military expenditure and military pre preparation in order to protect the sanctity of human life by the state, simply. Secondly, with regard to slavery in the Quran, people ask with regard to slavery. What they confuse slavery with is the slavery of those Europeans like Vasco de Gama and many others who pillaged various countries and took captives and made them into slaves. Was this slavery sanctioned in the Quran? Firstly, when the Quran discusses slavery, the Quran was addressing Arabs in a time when the Arab population had slaves and the Quran was being revealed. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed laws relating to the etiquettes, rights of those slaves. That is the context of those verses of slavery. But additional to that, after the completion of the revelation of Al-Quran Al-Kareem and its explanation, the Sunnah of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, the Quran did not sanction any form of slavery except one, which is captives of war. What is captives of, captives of war? That when a nation goes to war with another nation, the ruler has the option to enslave. It does not entail obligatory enslavement. Why the option to enslave? 
the, op- the options are many. One of them is taking them as captives. An additional is to execute them if the need arose. A third is to ransom the captives. And fourthly, to enslave them. These are options. It does not entail that the ruler would necessarily exercise the right to enslave. It's an option that he exercises if the need arose. But when the Muslims were told to keep them as captives or as slaves, this entailed that the slave, the word slave in Arabic is from riq. Riq is to be sucked with them. If you make a cross-examination between slavery in Islam, not to be confused with this enslavement of Africans who were placed in Africa, uh, in America, African Americans, not, not to be confused with people who were placed on plantations, no. Two different concepts. Enslavement in Islam entailed that that slave sees the daylight and is free to roam. He works for his master eight hours maybe a day. And the, the master cannot burden him with work. If he has a complaint, he goes to the, the court, the judge, the qadi. And the qadi then administers the law if the master is mistreating him. Additionally, he has eight hours a day to himself. He has eight hours to rest. He has the same clothes as the person who owns him. He has the same type of food. These are the rights that were given to those slaves. So when people are discussing slavery in Islam, they cannot confuse slavery in the Western world with slavery as it was in Al-Islam. And the Sultan Muhammad Al-Fatih was the first ruler to abolish slavery. After the conquering of Istanbul or Islamul, Constantinople, he abolished all of slavery. So when you hear these arguments, like there was an argument that some of them utilized in order to say that Rasulullah had slaves. But this person missed out a major fact. The Prophet purchased over 63 slaves in his life only to set them free. One slave for every year of his life on earth. So some of these people, they mention, oh, the Prophet Muhammad had slaves, but they don't mention he purchased those slaves to set them free. There was not a single slave that he kept as a slave. He purchased them and freed them. Sayyiduna Bilal was purchased on the command of Rasulullah and then set free. By Sayyiduna Abu Bakr Then additional questions. One of them relates to the marriage of Sayyidatuna Aisha radiallahu anha. They say, why did your Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa marry a young woman and consummated the marriage when she was only nine years old? And this comes as a shock to the system, to the modern mind. The answer is very simple. That Aisha radiallahu anha herself states in her old age, as narrated by Imam al-Tirmidhi, that women were deemed as being women once they passed the age of puberty in Arabian society. It's as simple as that. 
that in Arabian society, when a girl passed puberty, she was deemed mentally and physically mature to marry. But then people will say, why do you not practice this today? The answer is, the ruler has the right to raise the age of consent. Why? If he sees that the mental maturity does not exist in the younger children. Simple. Meaning, in that time in Arabian society, if you pass the age of puberty, you were an adult. Puberty is, in Islamic law, puberty is when you are an adult. And physical maturity. Physically, the person is strong enough. And in those societies, young men and women, they were deemed as men and women once they passed puberty because they were mentally mature growing up in those societies. But in later times, when, when urban life changed, when society changed, then the ruler has the right to raise the age of consent based upon the mental maturity of the women and children who now are deemed as children if they are under 18. But we know 16-year-olds are physically able to marry biologically, but mentally they may be immature. So the ruler has the right to place an age restriction. Very simple issue. But again, in an age of contradiction, how is this an age of contradiction when they talk about sexual freedom and people having multiple partners and uh, committing all sorts of sexual violations? They question a valid marriage where the Prophet married a woman with the consent of her father, with the consent of society, in that period of time, with her consent, and even when she became old, she did not disagree with the marriage, meaning old as an older woman, after the passing away of the Prophet So this is an age of contradiction. For an atheist to ask this question, it has many internal flaws and internal contradictions. Then we have questions regarding the Hadood punishments. They say the Hadood punishments, which are the corporal punishments like amputation of the hand, Lashes for zina. In the Quran, there are lashes for zina. And there is stoning in the sunnah for a married person. They say, how can this fit in modern society? In the modern age? The answer is that there are severe punishments in the modern age also. Like you have the electric chair in America, you have the lethal injection. But in reality, for the hudud punishments, to be carried out, there are stringent conditions. That if the conditions are met at all, then the punishment is carried out. Why is the punishment carried out? To protect five things. The law of Islam protects five things. One of them, it protects life. Secondly, it protects wealth. Thirdly, it protects lineage. Fourthly, it protects intellect but it also protects religion. Each law has a protection of something. The hand amputation protects the wealth of people. The lashing protects lineage. Now, how many people have heard of crimes of passion? A man finds his wife, or a woman finds her husband sleeping with someone else. They, they carry out a crime of passion where they kill their husband, or killed their wife and killed the lover. 
it leads to death. So when Islam legislates that there is a punishment for adultery and there is a punishment for fornication, this places a limit on people carrying out those actions and therefore the punishment saves lives. The punishment itself saves lives. Additionally, as time goes by, the packaging of how the punishment is carried out can change. Meaning, in the old times, you may have had, you may have had in the old times, the hand amputation carried out in a different way. But today we have modern medical means by way of carrying that out. The packaging may change, but the punish, the punishment, the essence of the punishment stays the same. And in reality, through these severe punishments, there is actually a preservation of life. If these punishments are carried out at all, like rapists, the punishment for an actual rapist is that his right hand be amputated, his left foot be amputated, and then he be placed, crucified, meaning tied to a tree until he dies. This is the actual punishment for a rapist or a child molester that is carried out in Islam. But anyone who objects to this, what better punishment do you have for an actual criminal who does this? Of course, this is a subject for another time which relates to Sharia law itself. I ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to enable us to understand our religion correctly. We will be opening up for questions and answers. Alhamdulillah, that was a beautiful lecture delivered by our honored guest, Sheikh Asar Sahib. And Ibla Sheikh Sahib went through many things. Ibla Sheikh Sahib went through many subjects and it explained to us the importance. Of the, of the Muslims belief in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the why do we not believe in multiple gods? How do we know that we are worshipping the correct God? And how do we know we are following the right way when there are so many different ideologies and religions in the world? What makes us so certain that we are upon the Haq and the rest of the people that follow other ways and other religions are on the market? Um, the brothers have sent forward a lot of questions on the group. I will try to ask Sheikh questions that uh, haven't been covered inside their lecture. So, with your permission, Sheikh, you can begin. How does Islam deal with the problem of evil when we know things like children have cancer, so many people's parents have died, houses have collapsed upon families? If God is so loving and cares about his creation, then why do the human species go through so many atrocities and why do we suffer if God loves us so much? The answer to this question, common question, is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is not only loving, he has other attributes as well. 
like he is Al-Mumid, the one who gives death. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is Al-Muntaqib, the one who takes, who carries out punishment. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is Al-Khafid, the one who lowers. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has so many names and attributes. The difference being that some of the, the names of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the names of his actions can be opposites. They can be opposites. Like he is Al-Muhi, the one who gives life, but he is also the one who gives death. Similarly, everything belongs to Allah. So he, he has tasarruf. He carries out his will as he wants. The meaning of evil, by definition, is relative. What does that mean? It means that evil is an action where a person has no right to violate the property of someone else. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, everything belongs to him. So you cannot ascribe evil to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala by definition. Because everything belongs to him in the first place. It's taking human standards and applying them in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Thirdly, there is an entire picture, like a story. The story starts with a protagonist. The protagonist goes through so many difficulties until he reaches the end. The conclusion would not be as good if he did not go through all those events in the first place. There is an entire picture. And the entire picture will be demonstrated on the Day of Judgment. So, Sheikh Salva's planning point, and I think a very important main point that they've made, is that we only have the pixel, and the picture is ultimately with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So what we see as bad, may in reality be something that's good for us, like uh, something that erases our sins, and the ultimate answer will be given on the Day of Judgment. <coughs> Hmm. <coughs> Sheikh, I think this is linked to this question of what is Islam's view on Darwin's evolution theory even though we know for example that is taught to us in science that about Darwin's evolution theory and why do we restrict it many people give an answer and they say that Okay, evolution affects everything, but when it comes to Adam Islam's specific creation, why do we make the stopping point on the creation of a human being? And is it kufar for a Muslim to accept evolution theory? So, uh, Darwinian evolution theory, we place that within a, uh, a particular paradigm of science. Does it lead to absolute certainty? The claim of some that it leads to absolute certainty is actually even rejected by Darwinians themselves. Can, is it comparable, for instance, with the geocentric model of the universe or, or Newtonian physics? The answer is no. In terms of a scientific model, evolutionary theory is the best model of biologists that they have today. But it can undergo a major paradigm shift. Anything that can undergo a major paradigm shift and is prone to change does not affect our belief. Because if it changes in a hundred years, which it definitely will, scientifically speaking, then our belief is not affected in any way. Meaning, the rule is that the Quran can never contradict 
empirical fact. The Quran can never contradict empirical fact. Is Darwinian evolutionary theory an empirical fact? The answer is no. It's the best biological model that they have of human and, spe uh, human and species origin, but it does not entail absolute certainty. Therefore, the, the model has holes, but it awaits what an information buildup until it will undergo a shift of a new theory. So, when we say human origins are kufar, that is stating a fact, but with animals, saying that animals may have undergone an evolutionary process, we say that's possible through the creation of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, but even then, it does not entail a fact. Even species going through uh, an evolutionary process is, does not necessarily entail a fact. It's, a, it's one of the scientific paradigms, hypothesis that is agreed upon by the overwhelming majority of scientists today. But it does not mean that tomorrow they may have a different view. It's, it falls under that. In terms of when we epistemologically, when we place the, the model under types of knowledge that it entails or imparts, it does not fall under absolute certainty. I think the main point to highlight from Tibla Sheikh's answer is not something that leads to certainty, and as Sheikh mentioned, it will undergo transformation like in a hundred years, and I believe Sheikh quoted in his book as well, in Devil's Chaplin, where talking where he said that where he mentioned about the evolution theory and other philosophers of science and biology have mentioned as well. That there's, for example, right now there's a tree of life. Some people, some philosophers of science are saying, no, this it's a web of life. No, it's a hedge of life. So it's not something that leads to certainty, and it shouldn't be something that affects one's belief in Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala. If Islam is the religion of peace, as we claim, then why are Muslim countries? Backward as they are woke and fighting all the time, that like we are truly upon the Haq and have the true religion, then why is it that Muslim countries constantly engage in this fighting? Again, I believe this, these type of questions are a produce of the colonial mindset. Uh, because if you reverse, you could say at one point the Mughal Empire, the Mughal dynasty in India was responsible for over 25% of the GDP of the world. Does that now entail Islam is the truth? Do we use that as an argument? Meaning, when the Mughal Empire had a constitution, which was the Fatawa Alam Gili, an Islamic constitution, made by Mullahs, what they refer to today as Mullahs, uh, Mullah Ahmed Jeevan, his name was Mullah. Mullah Ahmed Jeevan was the one who wrote the constitution with his team, for the Mughal Empire, and they were responsible for over 25% of the world's GDP. In Alamgiri's Alam time, Alamgiri was in fact the name of his sword, Aurangzeb's time, there was a point even when Western pirates, they sacked an Indian ship full of gold and silver, and they took the gold and silver to America. Now, does that argument entail that Islam is the truth because they were economically and scientifically ahead of the world? The answer is no. Being economically and scientifically ahead 
is nothing to do with religion. It's to do with effort of a nation. So if a nation has no productivity, has no investment in science, then they will not progress scientifically, irrelevant to what religion they are. Scientific progression has nothing to do with religion. It has everything to do with the efforts of a nation. Pakistan, since its inception, has been largely led by a secular elite. We know at the Ashilans, at the apex of Pakistan, secular people run the country. They have not economically driven the country successfully. They have modeled the country. Uh, during uh, Bhutto's time, it was modeled on socialism. All the other rulers have been capitalists, capitalist model, for e economically. And in terms of scientific progression, they only invested in the atomic bomb. Meaning, an atomic bomb, you could have at least uh, enabled the country to have decent gutter and sewage system. I say many times, leave the talk, uh, meaning Imran Khan, when he came into power, he's going to establish riyasat e Medina for a populist Islamic vote. Leave this talk. Just in your five years of rule, all of the rulers, just sort out the sewage system in Pakistan. You go to Karachi, areas like Clifton, they claim these are the best areas, and it smells of excrement. And you talk about the mullahs being backward. You cannot even sort the military with its elite, they cannot even sort out the sewage system in their country. They pollute the whole of the, the sea in Karachi, the Karachi port is polluted with, with excrement of people. And then they say the mullahs should sort out the sewage system. It's the act of the governors, those who are ruling, they must, uh, if a civilization is to progress, the ruling elite must invest economically and into the scientific uh, efforts of that country. Like here in the UK, the government invests into science. Therefore, you have scientific progress. But for anyone to claim that Islam holds back science, it's false. Islam gives moral and ethical guidelines to science. For instance, in science, there may be certain unethical things that are carried out. Islam gives guidelines. But when is Islam ever opposed to a nation making a rocket to go out into space and explore the universe because that does not contradict our religion. It can never disprove Islam. Science can never disprove Islam. We do not have a fear of science. We call for the progression of science. Science can never contradict the essence of Islam. Therefore, for anyone to claim that there is a contradiction between Islam and science, this is false, the backwardness of the Muslim countries comes down to corrupt, corruption. And corruption comes down to lack of application of Islam. Because if you had truthfulness, then if you had truthfulness, you would, you would be honest in your day-to-day -day application of the economic laws of Islam and the funding of science. While we're waiting, I'll 
try to speak in a louder voice. Mashallah, that was answered very well by Qibla Sheikh Saab and Arnold Toynbee. He said, civilizations declined when their leaders stopped responding creatively. So, may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala give all of our governments the tawfiq to act upon the teachings of Islam and to to act upon the teachings of Islam and to inshallah work towards helping the Muslims that are suffering in these places. Amin. <coughs> Coming to the next question, Qibla Sheikh Saab, the Muslims get asked, and I think this is referring to the discussion between Richard Dawkins and Mahdi Hassan, where Dawkins said, that How do you believe? that your Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, flew on a unicorn to see Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and he was sort of making a joke and a mockery of that fact and you could see the audience were laughing. So how would Muslims answer this question? So the question is flawed. Why is the question flawed? In Islam we do not believe that the Prophet sallallahu rode on a unicorn. He rode on Burak. What is Burak? Burak is you can say an interstellar dimensional being. There's a big difference. So, the Isra al-Mi'raj, which is the night journey of the Prophet does not contradict scientific fact. How? Today we know of relativity. Scientific relativity entails that a, something can occur in a dimension or a realm for a long period of time, which entails a short period in our reality. We as Muslims claim the Prophet traveled on an interstellar being from a different dimension, went to Palestine, and traveled relatively, in terms of relativity, traveled at a quick pace, carried out a journey, and came back within the moment of a time. Now, someone can deny the claim, but for them to claim that it's anti-science, they can never make this claim. It's not anti-science. Another question that's come, I think this is in reference to a doubt about Islam. Is like, for example, when it mentioned somebody's put here, how can Sayyidina Abu Hurairah be Allah and memorize all of these hadith when he spent only a few years with the Prophet? But I think the question is really stating how can we have confidence in our hadith tradition when it's based on transmission, the words of men like Chinese whispers? So, again, the, the comparison between Chinese whispers and the hadith is false because anyone who knows anything about the science of hadith, they will know. Hadith transmission is based on Asma'ul Rijal, which is the names of men. Asma'ul Rijal is looking at the names and narrators and their biographies. Everything is compiled in encyclopedias. The narrators, their names are known, their dates of birth, their dates of death, their veracity, their trustworthiness as narrators. All of this is recorded, recorded in the biographical literature known as Asma'ul Rijal. So, this question can only emanate from someone who is either totally ignorant of science of hadith or is purposely attempting to uh, to give the false impression with regard to uh, the science of hadith. I think the important thing Sheikh is mentioning is many of these people who make this claim 
and many Muslims who read this, you often read it on the internet from ex-Muslim websites where they just put these sort of statements down. Sheikh mentioned the Hadith tradition in the past tradition, and it's based on things like Sheikh said, Hikrisad the continuity of the chain, the narrators have to be just, and it's a whole science within itself. So it's a baseless claim, and we as Muslims should educate ourselves more so that we don't succumb to these sort of doubts. Uh, Sheikh, I would also like to ask you a question in regarding, you had a, a debate, I believe, with that Christian lady and the man that was with her. And during that time, she was posting an objection, she was making an objection from Surah Talaq, where it mentions that as for the women who don't menstruate, saying that this justifies child marriages in Islam. And if you, on the internet, some people are making a claim that when we get Quran translations, it actually mentions as those women who have not menstruated as well. So how do we know the context of this verse? Does this justify child marriage in Islam? So, uh, people are confusing. In those societies, what would happen is if you had two children, a boy and a girl, they would carry out the contract of nikah. Contract of nikah. When the contract of nikah would be done, when the children would reach puberty, they would have a choice. You want to stay with the spouse or not stay with the spouse? If he decided he doesn't want to stay with that, that girl, they are separated. When they are separated, the Quran refers to some, according to some commentators, Lam Yahidna, those girls who have not reached height, if the man, the boy now is grown, he's mature, he decides to divorce her, what is the ruling for such a girl? This is the context. It doesn't mean that young children were married and they would have sexual relations with young children while he has been done. This is, was never practiced. Even in historical accounts, it was never practiced with young children who never reached the age of purity. So this is one interpretation. The other one is the women who are past their menstrual periods. So these are the two correct understandings of that verse. Sheikh answered that very well. So anybody who seeks clarification on that matter, inshallah, when this is uploaded, they can see that Islam has no justification for child marriages and you should look at people like Jimmy Savile, who are non-Muslims, who molested children, and highlight those people as the perpetrators of those... Uh, Prince Andrew. And Prince Andrew, and, and he's tied. That's not me, because I don't have the tie. So you should look at these people, rather than coming to Islam, which is categorically gives every single human rights, and you should look at those people who are non-Muslims, who have carried out these actions. Um, I think this is more to do with spirituality, um, uh, rather than actually atheism, is that Muslims, okay, if we accept Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, we worship God, now why do we have to live such a stringent life, pray five times a day, fast a month, give charity, why can't we just live in a peaceful manner? Why do we have to pray five times a day, we have to adhere to a certain lifestyle? So, the five daily prayers, they are actually for our benefit. Why? Because we were created innately with animalistic desires. So if we do not pray five times a day, we are not constantly remembering Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and our heavenly origin. So the five daily prayers 
are there to remind us of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and to maintain a remembrance of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala as well as to undermine the animalistic desires. It's a form of discipline. Five daily prayers are an act of discipline where we discipline ourselves. It's not an act of slavery and you do it willingly. A Muslim does this willingly out of love for Allah, not being forced by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So this is essential to note. That's very well by our Sheikh Like Sheikh mentioned, before that this word is a task for us, and the more good deeds we do here, we'll see it's Nafija on the Day of Judgment, inshaAllah. <clears throat> Another question relating to atheism uh, and to the topic I had, Sheikh, is why does Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, for example, and I think this is what the person means, is sometimes good people pass away, like uh, Mother Teresa and all of these people. Why is their punishment still held even though they spent their lives serving humanity? Now, why is it categorically stated for the disbelievers they will enter the empire, even though they could have lived a pious life in this life without being... Firstly, uh, individual salvation is only determined by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But the rule is if anyone dies an unbelief, the kafir, they stay in hellfire forever. But some people ask, there are some people who ostensibly did good works, why are they being punished in hellfire forever? The answer is very simple. If a Muslim donated 10 pounds to a charity with the intention of ostentation, he will not be rewarded. A Muslim. So a, un, an unbeliever carries out acts of charity for the sake of a false god, for the sake of a false god, or for the sake of humanity, then they should expect their reward from the false god who doesn't even exist. They should expect their reward from humanity, which humanity can never benefit. So therefore, because their actions were not for Allah, why should they be rewarded by Allah? That's a summarized answer. Well, I think the main point that Sheikh is trying to highlight is that if they were worshipping a false god, then why do they not ask that false god for the reward? As every human has a rational faculty to come to the right conclusion, which is Islam. So, Jazakallah Sheikh for your answer. <clears throat> Another question, which is of great importance, I think, to all of us here and our viewers at home, is that does social media in general have a negative impact on the upbringing of children and what practical steps can parents take to limit their usage? I think the means is many of these doubts arise is when kids are and teenagers and adults are watching videos on the internet unsupervised and this is how we are falling into this problem. What practical steps? Generally speaking, uh, the internet or not the internet specifically, social media has more harms than benefits. Children and adults alike should all be reading books. Reading is more beneficial than social media. Information in books, reading books is much more beneficial. And how do you limit this? Why are people buying their children smartphones? If, they, if the child necessarily needs a phone, they can buy them a simple phone with no devices. But what are they going to do with phones with additional devices. It's more harmful than beneficial. They have 
these grooming gangs and online grooming gangs, other harms and vices, all found online. So therefore, parents are responsible. Uh, nurture your children and reading books. If you nurture them from a young age in reading, as they get old, they will find concentration and reading very easy. But if you nurture them on entertainment and moving pictures, then their minds cannot process information, their minds cannot concentrate for long, they cannot listen to lectures, even online lectures. Initially, people would listen to lectures for a long time. Then it cut down to half an hour. Now with TikTok, they listen for half a minute and then 10 second videos because they need a constant, uh, constant uh, flow of uh, dopamine. So I think it's very important what Ibn Sheikh Sabah said, and we know these studies done that kids that excessively use these sort of applications excessively use these video games that affects the neuroplasticity of the brain, it affects them and look at it now if you see if you are to think twenty years ago that you needed something fidget spinner. Think when you need a fidget spinner in your hand, you can't concentrate. It's all to do with this as a problem. And as Sheikh said, we should look for alternatives for our children, like reading, hobbies that will be beneficial for them in the future, inshallah. Um, Sheikh, uh, somebody has asked, atheism is a growing threat to Muslim children. What are prominent scholars of Ahl-Sunnati wal Jama'ah doing to update the curriculums and approach to the madrasa education systems, especially in the UK, to accommodate for this specific Firstly, with internationally speaking, I know Jami'atul Azhar al-Sharif. Al-Azhar al-Sharif, they have many beneficial works and syllabi works introduced in to the university and published in Egypt because there, there is a growing trend in Egypt, like in Pakistan, of atheism. So Al-Azhar has had a good reaction to atheism in terms of intellectual and academic works. Here in the UK, there is no real progress amongst uh, the Sunni mosques in terms of countering atheism. Most of the people are still interested in the peer culture or the north culture or in some cases just disputes that can be resolved with writing one academic book on the subject. So you may have internal disputes sometimes either a fiqh dispute or even an aqidah dispute, which just requires one academic word to respond to all the claims. Instead, what they do is they prolong the entire discussion, talk after talk on the same issue, argumentation, using energy against one another, disputes, wrangling, and wasting time and energy. So, while other organizations, they claim they are doing da'wah, but they just speak in Urdu. Why, for Allah's sake, are you still speaking Urdu in the mosques when you have an entire generation that is English-speaking? They cannot even cater for the English-speaking majority. We are the majority now in this country, from the Muslims. 
So there, there has not been real progress as of yet. I've written my book, Islam and Atheism. The book can be introduced into the curriculum. The book can be introduced in all masajid. There are qualified imams that can even explain the difficult portions of the book. There is only one chapter which is really difficult, which is chapter 2. The rest of the book is very easy to read. The purpose of the book was to ignite and initiate an entire campaign up and down the country as well as internationally, which it has done, alhamdulillah, to wake up people with regard to this reality. So, uh, the peer culture is a culture which inculcates continuous ignorance. All the peers inculcate, or the vast majority of them, they inculcate ignorance. They advocate blind following. Some of them, they say that blind following in Aqidah is permitted. They inculcate ignorant practices, uniforms and practices, weird practices, bid'ah in the religion. They do not promote the sunnah, Quran and sunnah amongst the people. They will teach them stories, anecdotes, but nothing from the ahadith of Rasulullah advocating bid'ah, innovation in religion. While the vast majority of the youth, they are ignorant of those things that are important and then they, some of them leave the religion, some of them turn to alternatives that are not being provided by the masajid and by this ignorant weed culture which has been imported. It doesn't only come from India, Pakistan, sometimes it comes from the Middle East as well. An ignorant weed culture. All you learn is just to kiss the hand of these sides, but your children will remain in ignorance all the rest of their life. All they learn is to kiss hands, and they remain ignorant. So this, this is um, so for us to expect any progress is naive of us. So we need to take the initiative and uh, start the programs like this. Uh, initiative of what engaging with people rather than leaving it to an incompetent selfish institution an incompetent selfish institution which is only filling its own pockets that's the reality some of these people they leave uh, the Nalkhans and the Peers they leave the country 40 50,000 pounds what have they given the youth here similarly those who are resident here Apart from chants and mass, and uh, what they do is uh, inculcate the continuation of ignorance as well. They want to maintain the culture. We don't want to maintain the culture, we want to maintain Islam. We want to maintain Islam in the country, not maintain a culture, you maintain a, a peer culture. So, this is essential for, for us to realize. I think Sheikh Mohammed has highlighted very, very important points. How can we speak about development when we are engaged in so many backward practices ourselves? And what Sheikh is mentioning about it, no, he's not saying all peace, he's saying the vast majority of them. It's a fact, you just need to look around you, is that if you go to Birmingham, there's like a peace on every road. And many of our people are just in this culture of kissing hands and fake respect without knowing anything about our religion.
and essentially Shekhar just highlighted that's why we are in this situation. Kibla uh, Shekhar, that was the last question, and now we just like to say, on behalf of the Kwa Institute and our masjid, we'd like to thank the Kibla Mulana Shekhar Sahib for coming all the way, uh, like Mulana Alis, my fellow Gummi from uh, Birmingham. And sharing his insightful lecture with us, so we pray that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala accept the words of Shaykh Asrasa. Boy, say Ameen. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala give us tawfiq to act upon what's been said. Boy, say Ameen. And may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala give us the tawfiq to make future programs like this that help the people.